When I was young, I struggled to learn how to tell time. This was before digital reigned supreme. It was the old school analog clocks that at the age of six, seven, eight, 24, just <laughs> gave me all kinds of trouble. You have a clock with 12 numbers on it. It's divided into segments of five. It's got a big hand and a little hand. It just made my mind explode. And even to this day, at the ripe old age of 43, if you ask me to tell you the time based on an analog clock, it'll take me like an extra beat longer than it takes the normal person. And even when I tell you what time it is, I will offer it to you in the form of a question. 11.35? Thankfully, I learned how to tell the time. And it's important to learn how to tell the time. It's critical to thriving as an adult. I tell you that to tell you this. Today, we're concluding our teaching series called the Why Series, where we've been looking at really this big question over and over again. Why do bad things happen? I mean, if God is so good and so loving, and if, if Jesus has fought and won the decisive victory, then, then why are things still so awful in this world? Why? Why? And I started the series, and, and I really told you right from the jump that God doesn't answer this question in any really kind of satisfactory way for us. He, he really doesn't. He just says, I'm God, you're not. Trust me. <laughs> that, that's his ultimate answer to why bad things happen. Uh, but, but the other pastors here have done a really good job of kind of teasing out the implications of what God says and, and the comfort we do have in the face of all of our unanswered questions. But today we conclude the series, again, wrestling with that question, why do bad things happen? And, and I mentioned my struggle to tell time because I, I, think it's a, I think it's a good analogy for what the real struggle is when we wrestle with the reality of awful things in this world. It really is a struggle for us to tell the time, so to speak. Uh, what I mean by that is this. Uh, when, we, when we are confronted with the reality of, of tragedy or difficulty or evil in this world, though we instantly ask why, what we really need to know is when. We want to know why things are, but we can have greater peace and perspective if we know when we are in this story. And the Christian faith offers an answer to that question. When are we in the story of humanity? And knowing when we are in the story of humanity gives us incredible peace and perspective as we deal with all the difficulties that remain and linger in this story. So, so let me just say this. What the Christian scriptures tell us is that we are in a time of, of temporary dysfunction and difficulty. We are in a time, this is when we are in the story of humanity, we are in a time of temporary dysfunction and difficulty to say the least. We are in a time where the, the awful aspects of humanity cause chaos. We are in a time where creation is groaning, as the Bible likes to say. Uh, we are at a time when, when evil still exists, and it, and it prowls, and it lurks, and it causes all kinds of trouble. 
In fact, in the New Testament, uh, the writers tell us that this is probably the primary way we should understand the time that we are in. We are in a temporary time where it seems as though evil is reigning and ruling, both the evil that's inside of human hearts, but also this personified force of evil that we call Satan. It seems to be reigning and ruling. There are all kinds of evil, unseen forces at work in this world. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in the letter he wrote to the Ephesian church. He's trying to help them understand why things were so difficult and who the real battle was with. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes this. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is not just with ourselves or with other human beings. But our battle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says we live in a time of temporary difficulty and dysfunction where there are cosmic powers, spiritual forces in this present darkness. And then in Peter's letter, Peter's first letter, deep in the New Testament, Peter says this. He says to the church, a church facing persecution and difficulty, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Here's the key. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We live in a temporary time of dysfunction and difficulty where evil lurks and stirs and causes so much of the problems that we face. Uh, the Bible is, is clear about this. God is clear about this through his word. There are evil, unseen forces in this world, not to mention just the fact that you've got sin and your neighbor's got sin and you guys make the world an awful place and I help make the world an awful place. There are all these other powers stirring and working in this world and they are what's causing, we are what's causing, all together we are causing the trouble and the difficulty and the hardship that we face in this temporary time. But the key word is temporary. This age of dysfunction and difficulty, it will come to an end. That's when we are in the story. It's, it's difficult and dysfunctional now, but as we move further in the timeline, the difficulty and dysfunction will end. It will end when Christ returns and finishes the work that he started in his death and resurrection. He finishes the work of making all things brand new. And that day is coming. This time is temporary and a new day is coming. Peter continues in his letter to the persecuted church, reminding them of that. Again, he's helping them tell the time. Remember when we are, friends. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is going to bring about a day where he makes all the wrong right for us. 
To him be the dominion forever and ever. So notice Peter says that right now Satan prowls like a lion seeking to devour and it seems like he is the ruler because he's prowling and devouring and causing all kinds of trouble, not to mention the trouble we cause. But to him, to Jesus, will belong the dominion and the ruling forever. That's how this story ends. That's when we are. That's what's happening. That's the time that it is right now. There will be some struggle, but God will not let the difficulty and the dysfunction win. Christ will return and he will make all things new. What time is it? We are waiting for Christ. And while we wait, it can be really, really tough. That's the time. So then the question becomes, well, if, if the reason there is difficulty right now is because we live in this time where, where evil stirs and lurks around us and also within us, making it a difficult and awful time, what does it mean for us to wait well? What are we supposed to do while we wait for Christ to return and fix all things, while we wait for the time to change to the very end? What are we supposed to do with this world that is full of difficulty and dysfunction? Well, Paul and Peter both go there and they give some very clear instruction to people of faith who are waiting for all things to be made right and be made new. Paul in Ephesians famously talks about a suit of armor. He's using an analogy. He's saying, look, the world is crazy. It's not always going to be like this, but this is the time we live in now. The world is crazy and what you need is to understand that you are wrapped in armor and embrace it. And he talks about helmets of salvation and, and breastplates of righteousness and shoes of peace. And what he's saying is, you are covered in all of this work of God through Jesus Christ. And the work of Jesus Christ wraps around you and protects you. Don't you know that you're safe and protected? Believe that. It's all crazy around you, but it's not going to destroy you. You are covered in righteousness and salvation and peace. And you've been given the word of God, which can distinguish all the lies. You are going to be fine. It's awful, but you're going to be fine. You are wrapped in armor. Stand firm. Stand firm. But then he and Peter also say, while you're standing firm, resisting the evil, pray. That's what you do. You could say it like this. What do we do while we wait for the time to change? Well, we resist the evil and stand firm and we reach out to God. Resist and reach out. The, the encouragement that we're given is to create a constant dialogue as we live in this difficult time with the divine. When the New Testament talks about prayer, it, it really knows nothing of what kind of modern Western people conceive of when we pray, because we often compartmentalize our prayer to, to specific times of day or particular places like church. In the New Testament, really throughout the whole of Scripture, prayer is this constant inner and sometimes outer dialogue you have with God as you encounter the difficulties of life. Peter would go on to say, cast all of your anxieties in this difficult time onto the Lord. Literally, take them in your hand and like throw them at God with your heart and with your voice. Throw them at him. This world is awful and it makes me anxious. Throw that at God. I've lost a loved one and I miss him dearly. Throw that at God. 
My body is breaking down and it's not getting better. Throw that at God. My family is fighting and they can't figure it out and I'm in the middle. Throw that at God. Every time I turn on the news, something terrible has happened. Throw that at God. Cast all your anxieties on him. A constant dialogue as you're driving, as you're walking, as you're texting somebody else inside and sometimes outside, just, Lord, take this. This is awful. Take this. Help me to stand firm. Help me to stand firm. And trust that he will. He will help you to stand firm. He will not let this temporary time defeat you. Well, then what does it look like to stand firm while I'm praying? What does it look like to resist evil? Well, now, this, this is kind of a loaded question, but, but I'll just say this. I'll say, I think resisting evil looks like primarily an understanding of the power that evil doesn't have. The scriptures like to talk about Satan as this personified presence of evil lurking and tempting and teasing and harassing. And Satan doesn't seem to know that that he doesn't have much power other than the power we would choose to give him. Evil is real, but it only has power that we, as human beings, choose to give it, which is why the primary tool of of evil, the primary resource of the devil, is, is not to force you to do anything, but to tempt you and coerce you to do things, to believe a lie, to partner with darkness, to indulge in something awful. And so a big part of resisting evil in this time that we find ourselves in is understanding that evil exists and it is constantly trying to lure you and pull you into that which, into that which grieves the heart of God, into that which demeans or harms your neighbor, into that which destroys or harms you. It's constantly pulling, luring, tempting, and it's your task to resist and to say, I will not give it the power that it wants. Now, when I look at the landscape of our particular moment in this time, I see from my kind of pastoral sensibilities, I see that there are three major kind of movements or attitudes that people of faith in particular should be seeking, actively seeking and aiming to resist in this world. Satan prowls like a roaring lion doing at least three things in our day and age, things that resonate with our broken sinful hearts. And the first is this. It prowls like a roaring lion telling you that it is right for you to selfishly indulge anything you want. We live in a time that says, if you want it, if you desire it, if you feel it, you can do it. Virtually, it seems, whatever it is, and whatever rationalization you wanna give to it to do that thing, that rationalization holds up in the eyes of the world. Go for it, have at it. And it's all done in the name of freedom. Be free, indulge yourself. And we take that down all kinds of different roads. But remember, for for people of faith, freedom is not doing anything you want. Freedom is finding the right things. It is finding the right things that actually set you free to flourish. The second thing for us to be wary of is that we live in a day and age that is luring us and calling us to hatred and contempt. 
that is telling us that because you have the moral high ground in your mind, it is okay for you to have contempt for somebody else, to look down on them, and it is okay for you to hate other people. You can see someone who lives differently than you and you can say, well, I have the moral high ground, I live a better life or, or, or more right and pure life and so I can look down on them and the way that they live and who they are and I can have contempt for them or I can think less of them, I can speak poorly of them to other people. We see this often played out politically. Uh, I'm a Democrat and I'm morally superior and so I can look at the, the radical right, everyone who's a Republican, and I can say, well, it's okay for me to have contempt for them because they're the real bad guys causing all this evil in this world and I can hate on them because they're doing all this harmful stuff in the world. It's okay for me to have contempt and hatred in my heart towards them. Never mind the fact that Jesus says if you hate somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. <gasps> Forget that, I'm free to hate them. Or, you know what, I'm a Republican and I believe all the right things and my cousin who's on the far left, just an extremist, it's okay for me to have contempt for her, to hate her, to look down on her, to say terrible things about her despite being related to her. I have the moral high ground. And this gets played out in all kinds of ways. We are being lured into contempt and hatred. The other thing we're being lured into by Satan who prowls like a roaring lion is deep and unshakable despair. But it's sneaky because we live in a particular moment at this time that says there is no truth underneath your feet to stand on, to give you steadiness in a changing world, and there is no God above you. To, to, to hold you accountable, to, let, alone, let alone bless you and guide you. You are utterly on your own, floating out into space. You, you are on your own. And I'll tell you what, when you are lured into believing that there is no truth beneath your feet and no God above you to bless you, you might think, you might be told that that leads you to freedom where it ends is deep and dark despair. I cannot make sense of the world. I have no control of the world. There is no meaning in this world. There is no help in this world. So I just end up feeling crushed by the weight of the world. These are things that we are being pulled into, and I know you see it. Indulge it. Do it. Whatever it is. Hate them. It's okay. You have the high ground. You're on your own. You're all by yourself. Why are you so sad? We are called to resist these things, to press against these things, and to say, no, I will not buy into the lie of these things, and to reach out to God who will give us strength in the face of these things. And he will remind us that this day and age where we battle such things is ultimately temporary. Stand firm. Why do bad things happen? Because of the time we find ourselves in. But this time is coming to a close. I want to give you an analogy that, that I, find, I find particularly helpful, okay? Uh, this past Thursday was my grandfather's 99th birthday. He celebrated with coney dogs and ice cream. My grandfather fought in the Second World War. He was in the 10th Mountain Division. He was on ski patrol in the Alps. And uh, talking to my grandfather this week and uh, thinking about him and all that he did in his life, it got me thinking uh, about the Second World War, and it actually stirred up in me a, an analogy that I think is helpful. For the history buffs in the room, tell me, what, what happened on June 6th, 
1944. What happened on June 6, 1944? Do you know? D-Day, that's right. That's the day that 130,000 Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy. And it was the decisive battle of the war. It was, it was brutal. It was awful. It, but ultimately, it was victorious. And it turned the tide of the war. And from that moment on, from that moment on, everyone knew the outcome of the war. One time, my grandfather even told me, we were talking about his war experience. He said, after D-Day, everybody had hope. After D-Day, everybody had hope because the decisive battle had been fought and won and everybody knew it was just a matter of time before the enemy put down his weapons. And it was over. Now, victory in Europe Day happened in May of 1945. Victory in Europe Day being the day that, that Germany offered an unconditional surrender and the war actually completely ended, apart from the war in the Pacific, which went on for another couple of months. But the heart of the war in Europe was done, VE Day. Now, how much time went, went on between the decisive battle and the ultimate victory? I'll tell you. 336 days. The battle continued for 336 days. The war was functionally over. And yet there was still fighting for 336 days. There were still lives lost for 336 days. There were still tragedies occurring for 336 days. For 336 days, the time between the decisive battle and the ultimate victory, it was awful. It was difficult. There was still a war, even though the war was functionally over. And everybody knew the ending. And hearts were filled with hope. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? I'll tell you what. What time is it? We live in those 336 days. That's where we live. Jesus Christ has fought the decisive battle in living and dying, and he is victorious in his rising. He has confronted sin, death, the devil, all that's evil in this world. He's confronted it, he's given his life for it, and he's risen to show that he has conquered all of it. The decisive battle has been fought and won. Victory is ours. We know that because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And yet, yet, we are still waiting for the day when the eternal ticker tape parade happens. We are still waiting for the day when Jesus Christ returns and brings about in full the implications of his victory. We are waiting for the day when the enemy puts down his weapons for good. We are waiting for the day when there's no more fighting, no more death, nothing awful. And that day, this day, is guaranteed because this day has happened. But in between, the enemy still thinks, as deceived as he is, that he has a shot. And so he still prowls and teases and torments. And evil is still a reality. Battles are still fought. Terrible things still happen. We must be diligent and vigilant in the time between even as our hearts are filled with hope. Why do bad things happen? Because this right here, this is the time. We live in between. But here's how we stand firm in the time in between. We put one hand 
on the battle that's been fought and won in the life, death, and resurrection in Jesus. And we place our other hand on his second coming and his return and the day of total and complete victory. And we hold tight to those two things. And a funny thing happens when you hold tight to two things on either side. You can stand firm no matter what happens underneath your feet. So the ground is still gonna shake. Tanks are gonna roll. Battles are gonna be fought. But you can stand firm because you hold tight to the victory that's been won and the celebration to come. What time is it? We are in the middle, but we are holding on to two things that cannot be taken from us, that make the ground sure and steady for us. When I was a kid, I struggled to learn to tell the time. And even today, there is a giant clock in our kitchen that mocks me. I think my wife put it there on purpose just to remind me that she is smarter than me. <laughs> it's got like fancy lettering. It doesn't, ha doesn't have any numbers, just like just little hash marks. It's awful. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll, see, I'll see my youngest staring at that giant clock in the kitchen, just perplexed, trying to figure out what time it is. And I'll lean over to him and I'll say, it's okay, buddy. It runs in the family. <laughs> Do you know what time it is. I'm not talking about the clock on the wall. I'm talking about the story of humanity. It's important to know how to tell the time. It's important to know how to tell the time so you can flourish as an adult, so you can have peace and perspective. You have to know when we are. And when you know when we are, it quiets so much of the anxiety caused and stirred by not knowing why things are the way they are. The battle has been won. The ground is shaky. But the celebration starts soon. Give it a few hundred days. <laughs>